taste of Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Good morning. Welcome to Spoken Word on 3CR. My name is Tina Janukas. 3CR broadcasts from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Today on the program I have with me Antonia Pont. Antonia is Associate Professor in Writing and Literature at Deakin University. Her debut collection of poetry, You Will Not Know in Advance What You'll Feel, published as part of the experimental Rabbit Poet series in 2019, was shortlisted for the Mary Gilmore Award in 2020. A committed practitioner of yoga, in 2009, she founded Vijnana Yoga Australia. Intriguing for a poet, philosopher and yoga instructor, her philosophical work investigates the idea of practising through the lens of the 20th century philosopher Gilles Deleuze in her book, A Philosophy of Practising with Deleuze's Difference and Repetition, published in 2021. Antonia, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tina. It's very nice to be here. As a starting point to our discussion today, do you draw distinctions among your poetry, philosophy and yoga, or are they all forms of practising that meld into one field of thought and experience? And here I am specifically thinking of the first poem in the series of poems called Sweet in your debut collection, You Will Not Know in Advance What You'll Feel, where you write... I could once have turned something into poetry. But shouldn't poetry be that thing which turns the writing person into words that unpack themselves like living rocks, little puffing rocks? So I'm intrigued how you balance or contrast all these interests, poetry, philosophy, yoga, may be living itself. That's a really great question. Thank you. Thanks for taking the care. In philosophy, there's a manoeuvre called subtraction that we see in a number of philosophers. When I think about it in relation to practising, it's like this idea that if you, if you take something away, you understand more your relation to it. So if you subtract something in a strange way, you clarify what it is and what it means to you. And I think somehow the way that philosophy works on my poetry practice is also that it's, it, it can determine the things that I don't say it determines what is left out and what gets what is allowed to be lost in a way and yes in your question sort of how do they all merge together i do think they're they're not separate actually there's a way in which there's something very poetic about working with the body in a generous and curious way i think someone who would be in the process of writing lots of poems would have a similar, not the same, but a similar certain sweetness that comes when one is in that space. And I think that's a space that comes from working with the body or with the breath. But also I get it from working with concepts. I remember once being at a reading group years ago at Melbourne Uni and going to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I thought, I never look as alive as this as when I'm with others and we're talking about ideas. I could just see that it, it made me well to have access to these ideas and to, to not have to worry about whether I was smart or getting it right, but just this playful space because it was a safe group and the people were kind and very vast-minded, that things could move in this really interesting way. And I think 
when poetry is working well, it also you, you stop worrying about what it is or especially what it what it says about you. Who cares? You know, you just are in the the matter of the language, and there's there's really a joy there, as much as it might be a poem about your sadness or a poem about loss. Do you have the same excitement when you are with poets as you do when you are with people discussing ideas? Sometimes, but this is, we're also post-pandemic and it's been a strange time. I think sometimes the spaces in which I meet poets often are at launches and launches are a terrible place for um, for discussing ideas, often because it's just too noisy and there's other things going on. I really, really like those one-on-one conversations often when you, you meet with a writing friend and it's got that quietness and you can really just speak into an idea or speak about someone you're both reading or something like that but sometimes bigger groups there was a time when there was a lot of poetry readings happening in Melbourne around people's houses and I think maybe the pandemic exploded that a little bit and we need it back we need it back because it's it's a beautiful space. You are a serious practitioner of the body arts and I'm thinking here specifically of your long devotion to yoga to the extent that you actually opened a yoga school Vijnana Yoga Australia where you pursue yoga in addition to your writing. Yoga has made me very comfortable in my body, focused on its marvellous capacity to constantly reinvent itself in different poses rather than any devotional attention to the body beautiful. When I was reading your poems, I was struck by their attention to the body, or I might say, an attention to the erotics of the body. And I think you do this quite sharply in one of the poems called Octofurcation. I wonder if you would like to read this poem and uh, tell us about the place of the body in your poetry. Hey, no thanks Tina, it's a great question. I agree, uh, the invention that can happen or the reinvention or the recasting of the self that happens when you just start to work with the body, definitely not by looking at it from the outside or by imitating anybody else but just by being inside it because extraordinary things are happening there. I totally agree. That's a very compelling aspect of it. The period of writing that Octification came out of was where I was very curious about trying to write an erotics for women that wouldn't lurch into the abject because I find that that is a well-trodden ground and obviously an important one, but it wasn't so much my flavour and my interest. And I wanted to find also this is a kind of pan-speciest um, I think it has been jokingly called the bestiality poem. So sorry, read it, um, listeners. It's, it's very, it's very nice poetry. When you say the abject, that's a term out of uh, psychoanalysis. So you meaning the negative affective space? Yeah, maybe or kind of that female sexuality always kind of either tries to sort of what's the word reappropriate where it's thrust by a patriarchal system. So it's thrust into being disgusting or on the edge of the seemly or... It's a very difficult space because I think often female poets go, well, I'll just reappropriate that. I'll just find space there and I'll, I'll, I'll riot in that space that I'm already placed in. But I wondered in that sort of idea of subtraction again, if I could subtract an abject kind of atmosphere, what would be left and would it work? And, of course, I made many poems that didn't work at all. And I don't know if this one does... All right, octification. Extending Hokusai's The Dream of the Fisherman's Wife. As what species could you love me best? Hunt my pleasure most sweet precisely. Our wants unleashing bright ladder blips, pirouettes in the chains of full moon mathematics. As a smooth brown bear lumbering near on heavy legs through funk of the leaf rot, 
I'd curl my back to your hot, plush belly, breathe your breath and umami fur, with your heart a far monster coming nearer and faster, building raw weather in my tiny ear. Or, need turns feline, you enter as cat, from the sodden garden glittering darkly, making dogged beeline for my trailing legs, turning bedroom eyes all snakish upon me, lazy, quite and quite decided to thrust your triangular, perfect head into person hands and person hips while my fingers probe into shoulder bones, finely mobile under liquid pelt, kneading that narrow and vulnerable place till you buckle and flip, and with vision a slit, we board our plateau of sustained invitation. Or you are forest, trees, want erupting in bursts umpteen, precocious confetti leaves, gasps of howling colour storming me on every side, you a rippling cloak of carnival eyes on my mat and mottled nudity, faces flurrying, quilted, wanton, swarming my face in quick block swatches, coming in squalls, buffeting surface, swaddling my waist or feathery pungent, then calmed to cushion, to coy fickle bed, of grit smitten tumbling, you my whisper city of orange and red, your manyness flicking me to spectrums illicit. But were I to let want even more and wetly further, unpicking those edges of sly politesse, I'd be found soundless on combed sea floor, with you on, around and monstrously in me, ghastly head with waveless gaze, trained on my closed and flitting eyes, your eight keen limbs sleuthing my sensitive, disc sucker pocked with reach to drown me, one tentacle thick beneath my nape, a pulsing yoke with tip in my lips urging my tongue to mute imitation, another, a question mark fast at my breast and a tail to verify rose punctuations, then slipping from statement to swelling obscenities, those syrupy lozenges neither spelt nor said, you auspiciously splice and divide my pleasure between surface, envelope and muscular inside. You network the folds, displace every shell, and artfully deploying my lush supine with inverted Britcanny, deftly unspine me. And as you were reading that poem, I kept thinking to myself, we're in very much in the primal here, <laughs> you know, uh, the primal animal, primal nature. What did you actually imagine as you wrote the poem, as those words came to you, those images? I don't know, sexy thinking. <laughs> <laughs> What's that for you? I don't know. I mean, letting, letting there be a manyness, I think, a dispersal of possibility. And this does come back to practising Less of a sense of where you're going. Not knowing where you're going is the most interesting place, but it, it's, it's more risky. It's more, it's more scary, actually. Not scary in those dynamics of kind of obvious fear-making. That's not interesting to me. It's more in a kind of Winnicottian sense. Winnicott, the child psychoanalyst who, who speaks about play as always involving a certain danger, but a, a kind of a thrill, which is not an obvious menace or something terrible. It's just that we don't know. We don't know what might happen. And I think for me, one of the, the most incredible things of growing older is just realising that I, I don't know what I want and I don't know what the other wants of me and the other doesn't know what they want of me. And, and that's such a huge, like it opens up this space. We're not locked in, in tunnels of prediction. So what's the risk you think you took in writing that poem? 
Oh, well, the risk with erotic poetry and also as a woman being writing erotic poetry is just either that it just won't be sexy or that it will be, yeah, just a bit off or it'll just be too vulgar or it won't be vulgar enough, you know. Like, it's a really fine line to walk and, um, you know, one, one just keeps practising. It's a challenge because the field has been for thousands of years now so occupied by male poets that it's very difficult for female poets to make incisions into that space. I, I think so, and, and it's... And being the object of the gaze in a certain way can, and that, that, that is also a very interesting and valid place with its own multiplicity of possibilities. But that positioning can, can often mean that the, the want coming from the so-called feminine space, whatever that means, has been less articulated as such as, as a want generated by the woman, I guess. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Welcome back. I'm Tina Janukas and I'm talking with poet, academic and yoga practitioner Atonia Pont on 3CR's Spoken Word program about her poetry collection, You Will Not Know in Advance What You'll Feel. She's also the author of A Philosophy of Practicing with Deleuze's difference and repetition. Antonia, if I were to draw on your notion of practicing, a mode of doing activity that involves consistency and focus, how does your teaching of yoga intertwine with your teaching of creative writing? Towards exploring your relationship to teaching yoga and creative writing, it will be interesting to hear the poem, Inoculation, from your debut collection, You Will Not Know in Advance What You'll Feel. Thanks so much, Tina. Yeah, Inoculation was a really fun poem. It says something about practicing and we can maybe unpack that. But here's the poem. Inoculation. Soak your head in the sun swathe till its sugar seeps in slow. Inoculation against daft other sweetnesses. Palpate in ongoing dark a proper light. Know to move at it to place a foot without reluctance. That public contriving... Nobody sees anything, so. Go, now, at once, step aside from custom squander. On a high rock sits avian time, watches tirelessly our dense sea, learns new palettes of impermanence, vast vacant colour, the systoles of luminosity, temperatures, paradox. Your head, oceans, hunt loneliness like a blind creature skimming the carapace backs, and submerged frowns of burnt volcanoes. Shoot the slow dark slowly into your own slowness. Meet in molasses depths a sating, dire and terrifying health. No less and less and less. There are some marvellous images there, but I'm still left wondering how the poetry and the yoga, when you're teaching these two disciplines, how they come together or separate out. Sure. Thanks for asking me to revisit this poem. I think the knowing less and less and less, the final line of the poem, absolutely comes from what practising allows for people. We live in a world, I think, that has a love affair with knowledge, and that's also wonderful. But there's always the risk in knowledge of sedimentation and of getting very stuck on the things we know and then preemptively not seeing the things that don't fit that rubric. And I think practicing as I teach it and and experience it for myself is a constant 
re-entering of a space where I suspend my assumption of knowing who I am, what my body can do, how I'm feeling today, what the next hours will be like. I mean, practicing sort of disrupts where you think time will go. In that sense, it's, um, it's both a little bit scary. You know, every time someone practices, hopefully there's, there's a, a weird mix of um, excitement, reluctance, a bit of boredom, and sometimes, you know, a, a fear of, of what might be there because I think the self, the self that we know risks becoming obsolete and we might get a self that we don't know. And of course, that's often what we yearn for, but we yearn for it in a little bit of an ambivalent way. We like the old self, but we wouldn't mind, you know, looking over the edge of the horizon to see what might be there. And so I think this poem was was coming out of probably quite an intensive practicing phase as well. And it came out of, of going for a long walk on Phillip Island, actually. And the idea of um, of just shooting the slow dark slowly into your own slowness. What I do know with creative writing, to go back to your question, is that I think, at least for me, it takes a very long time and I'm happy to give it that time. Like you give time to what you love and if you love to write, then it's going to be a lot of time to not only as in, you know, it must be intensive time and you must do it all the time, but it's like it's, it just might be years of engaging. I try to say to students to be both very serious and very patient and to try and combine those two requirements if they can and also to to not also presume to know what the thing they're making will turn out to be because if they apply their their judgments of right now onto this thing that's emergent, emergent and a bit raw and, you know, on spindly legs, they can cut down things before we know what they'll become. I suppose uh, someone who comes to a yoga class understands that there will be poses they will be taken through and perhaps they are ready for the frustration of not getting the, the pose or the joy or pleasure of going beyond the pose. And I'm wondering how that might translate in the creative writing workshop. What you've mentioned there are the poses, which are the kind of external structuring elements of yoga practice. But of course, they aren't really the point. But there's something about the poses that provide the external scaffolding for an experiential traversal or engagement or immersion in the body by having specific things that one generally does and some principles that one is following in order to indeed do the pose and not just do anything. So without a holding structure, strangely, we don't often relax. And without relaxation, it's harder for us to change, to to grow, to become someone else. So I think we often grow when we're held in the right way and not too stringently. It's a delicate balance in the teaching, but I think also for any for any listeners to the program practicing yoga, it's that thing of the the poses to be respected. It's there to to give you an opportunity to experience something. It's not a it's not something imposed like a you know a sticker from the outside. And how might that notion translate into the creative writing class? Often, just letting people have structures. I mean, poetry provides certain kinds of structures that then weirdly generate freedom and creativity. So do the other forms of writing, but also so does the practice of writing itself. So just that thing where you decide, you know, in the morning at some point in your day or before bed, you're just going to write and the content won't determine whether you'll do it and your mood won't determine whether you'll do it. You're just going to do it. I think it's a real wisdom of understanding how to structure time. And I think people are aware of it. You know, they've learned various methods of doing this. But putting a little structure around the outside of something so wild as creativity 
in a way brings more out of creativity than if we let it just run wherever it wants sometimes. It, people are different, but that's, I think that's mm. a fairly general principle in creative studies. Do creative writing students respond to that kind of discipline or are they looking for the freedom to express whatever they want? I think they love it. I think they love it, but forgive me any students listening if, if that's not the case. But I think because it's not an oppressive holding, it's a real holding, like it gives you somewhere to rest, then you can get to work. Because I think if, if, the, if the scaffolding or the structure constantly changes form, we're always a little on edge. So if you can set up a structure that's good enough, as my yoga teacher would say, you know, just find a structure that's good enough. It doesn't even have to be the best. Everyone's so obsessed with the best. Just good enough and then do it. It will produce something that you couldn't imagine. Given your multiple interests and your working pursuit of philosophy, poetry, yoga, would you say you're living the good life in the ancient uh, Socratic sense of exploring the self? It's a lovely question, Tina. Thank you. It's funny, I've been reading uh, Foucault's Hermeneutics of the Subject, which is a series of lectures he gave in the early 80s at the Collège de France. And um, he's really exploring these questions. So it's very pertinent that you ask me. I can answer with not as much ignorance as I would have answered. It's interesting. Years ago, someone said to me, why do you do yoga? And I said, I do it for politics. And they really scoffed. And they went, oh, what is it like about governance and stuff? And I, I really know, I was like, uh, this is not, this is a bit of a hostile conversational space. Maybe I'll exit now. But it was really for me that, and in, in that sense of the Socratic idea, or even going back to Plato in the Alcibiades, in that work, Alcibiades is a, is a rich young man. He's going to eventually um, have a leadership role. And so Socrates is posing this idea of having to care for the self in relation to his ability to, to govern his ability to make good decisions, his ability to to guide the people, to be in a position of power without being a schmuck. And so for me, learning to think well, having places where I practice various kinds of disciplines, not a word that, that rings with me, but that where I um, organise myself intentionally and I organise myself on terms that I have deliberately sought out, not on the terms of the dominant paradigm, that if I do that, then... As I become an elder, which we're all becoming, but we don't just get there, you know, f f from chronology alone. I think that status of being an elder where you are hopefully less of a schmuck than you were 10 years earlier or two decades earlier than that. And I think that's in a way that's the angle of what practicing can do is that I'm just not such an awful person when I practice. And that's something to do with being more open feeling like I'm anyway in touch with something rich and so therefore I don't have to run around stealing that from other people, demanding it from other people. It, it comes up from being engaged in, I think, the body, creativity and even, you know, processes of thought that are rigorous enough and interesting enough. So I think, yeah, the good life in that sense of trying to work out how, how to live and how to live in a way that you can that you can tolerate yourself is an ongoing question. I can't help asking this question because, of course, philosophy and poetry are not meant to be kind bedfellows. It's very true. So how do you approach these two and make them kind bedfellows? Oh, probably with just excessive, excessive underconfidence that, you know, I'm just trying to practice poetry, but who knows if poetry emerges from that and I try and practice philo philosophy or I try and practice the work of engaging with ideas, but I couldn't say whether philosophy per se emerges from that. Many of the people I read would, 
would say definitely not in both cases, you know, with, the, with their strictness of categories. I actually think the linchpin for me is actually the body and working with the body that were I not to have a, a, a practice in the body, I think I could end up, as I used to say, in the attic of my brain and live in a very small space where it would be possibly very, very skillful, but I wouldn't engage in other registers of being a person as fluently. So I think that the practicing lets me inhabit a, a bigger house, if that metaphor is okay, a, a bigger house of, of the self in the sense that there's other places to be that are less, also less scrutinized by the intellect. Because I think if poetry is only scrutinized by the intellect, we can strangle it a bit early so that the freedom in the body maybe turns into another kind of freedom. One of the things I enjoyed about your poems in uh, your debut collection, You Will Not Know in Advance What You'll Feel, is your metaphor making. The poems, I think, are quite intellectual in their delineation of experience. But within them, there is this lovely turn to language as an experience of its beauty-making capacities. Now, I could quote individual line or stanzas as they emerge out of the body of separate poems, but I wonder if you might speak... um, to what I'm suggesting about the way you use language, a slide from the cool power of thought to the hot feel of language itself. Perhaps, if you wish, you may read a poem that possibly speaks to that. Sure. This poem technique has an interesting background. It was based on a speech given about domestic violence and violence against women. And so this is actually the most, for me, the most feminist poem in the collection. But because it doesn't declare that, I think readers do a lot with it. And so there's sort of space in the poem for people to read what they want. Technique. Try to remember without flinching. It will smart like saline, but will train you. It will sting like broken skin on the back of a wrist. And although bracing is not fatal, it will make your mind fast and crisp ferociousness will surge through you. Perhaps you'll tilt your face to the ceiling of your room, your home, your place of employment, to the sky's big plainness. And with closed eyes and shaking your head, you'll smile as if drinking in a delayed rain, a bit breathless with the vertigo of where you've been. You will no longer feel crazy. You will no longer do surgery on what you know to make it include what they can bear to know of themselves, of their piles of fudged histories and convenient arrangements. They may be broken in all sorts of places, maybe. Entitlement is broken clarity, a seeing that never works as seeing, but works in other ways at others' expense. Except when you don't comply and need nothing in exchange, need no trades anymore, not even for them to concur or approve or sign your papers of leave or temporary visas of decency. You have decided to see, and you will repeat and repeat this decision that you will take up repeatedly with renewed technique and tenacity, and being your decision, it demands nothing from you. You do not have to change your ways, your timetable, your domestic arrangements, your diet, your profession, your name, your preference, your style, your sex. You can proceed and carry on as before. You do not have to react in any way or muster explanation. In the glare of your commitment, it may be They'll swell from looking's heat or explode like aliens trapped in a beam. But that's not your concern. You are neither the root nor trigger of their difficulties. What counts is that you'll no longer be driving yourself off sanity's cliff. Anxiety will leave you like a troop of fleas, and you will find with your definitive gaze, by merely looking, not veering, not embellishing, not shirking, that that order will 
like some old and obsolete lining, come away. And I think in that poem, for me, it becomes analytical, but we don't get lost in reams of thought, in layers of analysis. I think the way you suddenly turn to metaphor rescues the poem out of that analytical mode and turns it back into language, into poetry. Is this something you actively pursue? I think in the way you've just described it, you know, it gives me some insight in a way to what's going on. I think the point of the analysis, the point of being able to think well and see clearly would be that space would open up to feel, to feel and to be alive and to be surprised and to experience those very simple and, you know, egalitarian things about being a creature. I think the analysis isn't an end in itself. It's part of some kind of clarification that sometimes needs to be made that would then clear some space for what we don't know yet. Thank you. I think that might be all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Tina. I'm Tina Janukas, and I've been talking with Antonia Pont about her poetical and philosophical writings, as well as her devotion to yoga on 3CR's Spoken Word program. Her debut poetry collection, You Will Not Know in Advance What You'll Feel, published in Rabbit Poet Sirius, is available from Brunswick Bound Bookshop in Sydney Road, Brunswick, or online through Rapid Journal. Spoken Word broadcasts every Thursday morning on 8.55am or streamline at 3cr.org.au or download the podcast of the show. Thank you for listening.